Welcome to the Faith Life Fellowship Podcast with Dr. Scott Forrest. Today, Dr. Forrest presents a Science in the Bible teaching titled, The Laws of the Universe. Say with me, we're a church growing and thriving, overflowing with love, strengthening the family, transforming the community, impacting the world, where every member is a minister and a church alive is worth the drive. Woohoo! Well, today you're going to get the latest installment of science in the Bible, the laws of the universe. Amen. By way of introduction, I want to start with my favorite all-time quote. It goes like this. Everyone who is seriously interested in the pursuit of science becomes convinced that a spirit is manifest in the laws of the universe, a spirit vastly superior to man and one in the face of which our modest powers must seem humble. That was Dr. Albert Einstein. Amen. All right, so this first section is going to be called Questions for Job, and we're going to read from the book of Job, chapter 38, to kick off this science and the Bible message, which I've already told you is called the laws of the universe. Amen. Can you get excited about the laws of the universe? Can you give me a scientific amen? Amen, Dr. Scott. Your hypothesis is correct. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So we're going to read from Job chapter 38. And if you remember the story of Job, let me sort of set it up. He was stricken by the devil and suffered great tragedy in his life. And I don't really want to go into a whole lot of detail about that, except to set up the passages from Job 38 that I'm going to use as a launch point for this message. First, Job responds to each of his three old but not necessarily wise friends who gave him their version of why all these bad things had happened to him. And even though they got it mostly wrong, it turns out that in his response, Job tried to justify himself and place all the blame on God for all that happened to him. Then his younger and much wiser friend, you young people, Older doesn't necessarily mean wiser, amen? You can be young and wise too. Then his younger and much wiser friend responded by defending God as righteous and holy and just and telling Job that he had not responded wisely. Bottom line, if you read the whole book of Job, you realize pretty quickly that Job didn't have the big picture. He didn't factor in the actions of Satan into his scenario. In fact, if you study out the Old Testament, Satan is only mentioned seven times in the entire Old Testament, okay? Contrast that to how many times he's mentioned in the New Testament, and you see that Old Covenant saints had a limited revelation about the action of Satan in the affairs of men and the affairs of the earth, amen? So, finally in chapter 38, God had had enough of Job running his mouth and spoke out of a stormy whirlwind, the Bible says, that evidently appeared rather suddenly and challenged Job concerning his words and his wisdom. He begins by asking a series of questions that last for four entire chapters. We're not going to do that here today. Praise the Lord, somebody say. Anyway, in those four chapters, he asks a series of questions where he more or less sets Job in his place and chastising him for speaking unwisely and proudly 
without really understanding what was going on. So I'm not going to read all those four chapters, but I've selected some passages from chapter 38 that the Holy Spirit brought to my attention recently that accentuate just how vast the knowledge and wisdom of God is compared to the knowledge and wisdom of man. Just how vast the power of God is compared to the power of man. And yes, I'll be bringing some science into this uh, just to hammer home the point. In fact, a lot of science. So let's read some of the questions that God asked Job and see what we can learn. Job 38, verses 1 through 7 to begin with. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? How'd you like God to approach you like that? Listen, you've been talking long enough. I got some questions for you. Stand there like a man and take it. Amen. Now, Job knew full well who it was that laid the foundations of the universe and who laid the foundations of the earth and who it was that determined its dimensions. But the question, if you read it carefully, goes much deeper uh, than that. Because of modern technology, we know what Job wouldn't have known in his day. For example, the earth is a sphere with a diameter of 7,900 miles from pole to pole and 7,926 miles across the equator. Okay, so what does that tell you? The earth has a slight bulge around the middle like many of us. Amen. (laughs) All right. Praise the Lord. There is a bulge at the equator in the sphere of the earth because the earth rotates at 1,038 miles per hour. Amen. And so the centrifugal force, if you will, overcomes the force of gravity that's pulling that matter inward, and it stretches out ever so slightly. For sake of comparison, the diameter of Mars is 4,222 miles And the average diameter of Jupiter is 86,881 miles. The diameter of the sun is 864,938 miles. Wow. That's one big burning mass of hydrogen and helium. Amen. But even if Job could have known the dimensions of the earth that we know today, he still couldn't have known the answer to that question within the question that the Lord was really asking. Why was it determined that the earth's diameter would be 7,900 miles from pole to pole and 7,926 miles at the equator after it started spinning at 1,038 miles per hour? Can anyone here tell me even with our modern technology, all the reasons why it was determined that the Earth's diameter at the equator would be exactly 7,926 miles. Do I have any takers? Why not 8,500 or 7,500? Why 7,926? Can anybody tell me? I'm here to tell you, even the greatest scientific minds on the Earth don't know the answer to that question we might be able to measure it it seems that in our day and age we know a lot of the watts 
But we don't know many of the wise. Amen? Now, this is not the best example I could come up with, but there is a phenomena referred to as fine-tuning. How many have ever heard of the phenomena of fine-tuning? Okay. One person. Praise God. Two, three. Okay, we're cooking with gas this morning. Amen. <laughs> anyway, fine-tuning refers to the fact that all the physical parameters in our corner of the universe, in our solar system, just happen to be finely tuned to make it possible for life to thrive on planet Earth. If any of these parameters were to vary in the slightest, life on Earth would be impossible. More evidence for the existence of God. I think these kinds of things were determined by God with an exactness that was necessary to ensure that life would not only survive, but would grow and thrive on planet Earth. Verse 6. Talking about the earth now, what supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? Now, Job said, you have to know this, Job said in chapter 26, verse 7, that the Lord hangs the earth on nothing. And if you ever looked at a picture of the earth from from a satellite or from the, the space shuttle or from the Apollo missions, it pretty much looks like a sphere that's just hanging in the sky, doesn't it? So Job said, the Lord hangs the earth on nothing. And many people today ask the question, how does the earth hang in space on nothing? And I think the Lord was revisiting the words of Job and let him know that he wasn't exactly correct when he said, the Lord hangs the earth on nothing. On nothing you can see, I believe he was implying. But the foundations that seem to hang the earth in space are gravitational forces that modern man is only now beginning to understand. I laid the foundations of gravity, this is God speaking, when I created the universe, and the cornerstone of those gravitational forces was and is something called the space-time continuum I created. How many have heard of the space-time continuum? All right, all right. Our numbers are going up. And by the way, I would ask you to just bear with me if I get really geeky, scientific, you know, in my speaking here, because I can get there really quick. The tractor beam pulls me in real quick, okay? But I promise you, sooner or later, I'll bring you to a bottom line, okay? So if you don't exactly understand all the science, I think you'll get the big picture, amen? So for those of you that are not familiar with the term, the space-time continuum, It appears from our current understanding of the universe that light and time and energy and matter and gravity are all interwoven together like some complex tapestry or fabric, and we don't completely understand how or why. Scientists refer to this phenomenon as the space-time continuum. So verse 7 says, As the morning stars sang together and all the angels... Some translations say, sons of God shouted for joy. All right, so it starts off saying, you know, what supports its foundations, talking about the earth, and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels, sons of God, shouted for joy. Now, this verse ties the laying of the foundation of the universe with the singing of the morning stars. Morning stars seem to imply early stars, which were created when the universe began, and singing stars seems to imply vibrational energy. And in fact, it turns out that all the stars vibrate at some frequency. 
they do have vibrational energy that can be measured from a distance, and we can learn a lot about the structure of the star from that vibrational energy. So it could be said that the stars really did sing at the creation of the universe. Okay? They vibrated with the energy of God. I like to say it like that. So in a very real sense, the stars that were created at the dawn of the universe were indeed singing. So when stringed instruments, like you heard this morning on Dan's bass and his acoustic guitar, when stringed instruments are played, vibrational energy is converted into sound waves and the instrument sings, so to speak. This segues into a bit of an advanced topic called string theory, currently being studied by astronomers, astrophysicists, and some of the great minds of our time. Now, once again, how many in here have ever heard of string theory? Raise your hand. Oh, a good, quite a few. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory. Again, I say this is kind of advanced, so stay with me as I work through this. I promise I'll bring it down to a bottom line. It's something you can grasp. There are three places in the scripture which seem to hint, in my opinion, that string theory might be a valid theory describing the fundamental nature of the universe itself. And that would be an awesome thing because string theory has the capacity to reconcile the greatest mystery of the scientific age at this time. For 70, 80 years or so, we have known about the realm of the quantum, the quantum world, the world of the the atomic and the subatomic. And we've known also about the world of relativity, which Einstein introduced us to. But there's nobody that's been able to reconcile the world of relativity with the world of quantum mechanics. It seems from our our best efforts to understand what's going on, that the rules of physics in relativity are completely different from the rules of physics in the quantum world. And it has stymied scientists until this day. So if you want a guaranteed Nobel Prize, come up with some kind of unified theory that brings relativity and uh, the quantum world together, and you will be a hero that will be celebrated for centuries. Amen. Because they're just banging their head against the wall And they don't understand it. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's read some of these scripture passages that, to me, hint about string theory. Psalm 33, verse 1 through 6 in the King James Version. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Praise the Lord with harp. Sing unto him with the psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Remember that phrase. Sing unto him a new song, play skillfully with a loud noise, for the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment, the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Psalm 92, verse 1 through 5, also in the King James. It is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord, and to sing praises unto thy name, O Most High. To show forth thy loving kindness in the morning and thy faithfulness every night. Upon an instrument of ten strings, there it is again, and upon the psaltery, upon the harp, with a solemn sound. For thou, Lord, hast made me glad through thy works. I will triumph in the works of thy hands. O Lord, how great are thy works, and thy thoughts are very deep. So, these first two passages mention an instrument of ten strings in the context of creation. 
Amen? So we got a little bit of a pattern going there. Psalm 144, verse 1 through 3, and then also verse 8 through 9 in the King James Version. Blessed be the Lord my strength, who teaches my hands to war and my fingers to fight. My goodness and my fortress, my high tower and my deliverer, my shield and he in whom I trust, who subdueth my people under me. Lord, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him, or the son of man that thou makest account of him? Now, that refers to another psalm. Let me just read it to you real quickly. Psalm 8, verse 3 and 4. David said, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Almost verbatim, the same language. So you see, if you put these two scriptures together, Psalm 144 and Psalm 8, this instrument of of ten strings, which we're going to read about in just a few verses, is spoken of in the context of the God of creation. So let's pick it up at verse 8. Whose mouth speaketh vanity, and their right hand is a right hand of falsehood. I will sing a new song unto thee, O God, upon a psaltery and an instrument of ten strings will I sing praises unto thee. So you see you have three, actually four scripture passages that talk about an instrument of ten strings in the context of creation. Amen. And you're like, so what? What does that mean? Well, I'm going to tell you what it means. With that in mind, when I read these passages about five years ago, something went off in my spirit when I read that phrase over and over and over again. An instrument of ten strings. And I remember it. Now, stay with me. Keep the smoke inside the brain cavity. Amen. And I remembered the fact that string theory postulates that there are ten different types of strings or extremely tiny vibrating loops of energy that form all the fundamental particles that make up all the atoms that in turn make up everything in the universe. It's a radical theory which departs from the notion that the smallest part that we could divide matter into would be some kind of particle. Instead, string theory people believe that it's not a particle. It's a tiny vibrating string of energy. Thus the term string theory. Okay? And what it does, it solves a lot of problems and it brings together the world of relativity and the world of the quantum. So it holds great promise for really understanding how the universe works. Okay? Amen. But there's a conundrum concerning string theory. The theoretical size of these little strings of energy is so small that there's no technology in the conceivable future that could ever hope to detect them. I mean, they're that small. So for all intents and purposes, string theory is a theory that's impossible to conclusively prove in this day and age. In fact, I'm not even sure because I know how small those particles are. I mean, they're down there at the Planck length. Anybody familiar with Planck's constant and the Planck length? That's as far as you can divide matter. You can't get any smaller than that. And there is no electron microscope. There's no atomic force microscope. There's no technology we have that could even come close to seeing something that small. Okay? So it's a theory that's difficult to prove. However, it doesn't mean the theory is wrong. Okay? You know, perhaps the insight that can only come from the Holy Spirit dwelling inside the heart of some up-and-coming scientist might be able to find the clues that would lead to conclusive proof 
that the string theory is correct. Amen? I know you're on the edge of your seats. I can see it. You just can't wait until I finish this. So, am I on to something? Maybe. Maybe not. I've never heard anybody else preach or teach about these passages relating to string theory. It's just something that I feel like the Holy Ghost stirred in my spirit. So, what am I going to do? I'm going to continue to do what I've done over the last five years. I'm going to continue to pray about it, pray in the Holy Ghost, and ask the Lord to give me wisdom on this matter. Amen. Maybe one day he'll drop it in there, and I'll go up to the leading string theorist, and I'll say, I know why your theory's right, because the Holy Ghost showed me. Amen. Yeah, I got a Ph.D., but you know what? My Ph.D. is in engineering, nanosystems technology, not astrophysics. So this is not my field. Now, I'm comfortable delving into this because I understand the math. I understand the engineering of these kind of things. Amen. Hallelujah. So let's read Job 38, 31 through 33, and hear some really awesome questions that God asked Job. Verse 33, can you direct the movement of the stars, binding the cluster of the Pleiades, or loosening the cords? Some translations say the belt of Orion. What a question. Can you direct the movement of the stars? I can't even direct the movement of one star, much less all of them. Amen? Let's talk about the Pleiades since the Bible mentions it here. The Pleiades is also called the Seven Sisters. It's a bright, open star cluster located in the constellation Taurus the Bull with an average distance from Earth of 444 light years. Just so that you remember what a light year is all about, a light year is not a unit of time. It is a unit of distance. A light year is the distance that light travels in a year at a speed of 186,000 miles per second. That's pretty fast. That means you, if you were going the speed of light, you could orbit the earth seven times in a second. Get to the moon in just under two seconds. Yeah, that's pretty fast. Okay. So going that fast, how far does light travel in a year? Roughly six trillion miles so when you hear light year just remember it's not a unit of time it's a unit of distance amen so the cluster is home this cluster called the pleiades is home to more than 1,000 confirmed members but only a handful of these stars are visible to the naked eye now i i can i still have 2017 all those years i flew for the marines and the air force reserve i was 2017 i still have 2017 uh I have to have a little bit of help sometimes up close. But I can still see pretty good far away. And I can see pretty clearly seven stars in the constellation Pleiades. And I think that's why they call it the Seven Sisters. Anybody know the constellation I'm talking about? She does. All right. Praise the Lord. My daughter, by the way, giving me affirmation, giving me love. Hallelujah. All right. So... The stars in the Pleiades cluster, with 1,000 or more in that cluster, we just can't see them all with the naked eye, they're all bound together by powerful gravitational forces. So God was asking Job if he could direct the gravitational forces of the universe to bind the stars of Pleiades together, all 1,000 of them. Can you do that? I think we all know the answer. Let's talk about the constellation Orion. 
The constellation Orion is one of the brightest and best-known constellations in the night sky and lies on the celestial equator. It represents the mythical hunter Orion, who is often depicted in star maps as either facing the charge of Taurus the bull or pursuing the seven sisters, the Pleiades. Now, that one I don't get because he's got an arrow drawn. What does he want to do, hunt him down and kill him? You know, I think not. You know, I think he's going after the bull, not the seven sisters, but that's just my opinion. <clears throat> now, Orion's belt forms the belt of the hunter Orion, is, and it's one of the most familiar and easiest to find asterisms in the night sky. Let me define what an asterism is. It is a star formation that is a part of a larger constellation but it's not a constellation to itself. Everybody get that? So Orion's belt is an asterism because it's part of the constellation Orion, but it's only a part of it. The Big Dipper is part of the Great Bear, which we're going to talk about later. Okay? It's also an asterism. And also another one that comes to mind is the Southern Cross, which we can't see in the Northern Hemisphere. All right. So let's talk about Orion's belt. It's formed by three massive bright stars, two of which are supergiants. Anybody know what a supergiant star is? Of course Chris knows. Supergiant stars are massive stars that are 10 to 70 times as massive as our sun. And our sun's pretty big. So imagine something 70 times the size of our sun. Orion and his belt are visible in the northern latitudes of the earth from November to February. So God was asking Job if he could loosen the belt of Orion. In other words, with Pleiades, he said, can you hold these stars together with gravitational force? Can you do that? Then with Orion, he said, can you pull these stars apart that form the belt of Orion? I think we know the answer to that. Amen. Hallelujah. In other words, can you break the gravitational forces that Keep these stars in line together to form the belt of mighty Orion. And verse 32 says, Can you direct the constellations through the seasons or guide the bear with her cubs across the heavens? Well, the information that I just gave you sort of explains the first part of this equation. Constellations like Orion are only visible in certain seasons in the northern hemisphere. Others like the great bear, as we're going to find out, are always visible in the north latitudes of the earth. So let's talk about the great bear. The Latin name is Ursa Major, which means the great bear. And most astronomers refer to it as the great she-bear. So it's a mama bear, all right? And the great bear is the largest northern constellation and the third largest constellation in the sky. Its brightest stars form the Big Dipper asterism. Remember, I've already defined what an asterism is. And it's one of the most recognizable shapes in the sky, also known in the U.K., and I did not know this until I did research for this message, as the plow. Come on, UK, can you come up with something better than that? It's a motor grader? Come on. It's the Big Dipper. Get with the program. So God was asking Job if he could cause the constellations to pass through the night sky in their season. Now that has to do with the rotation of the earth and its orbit around the sun. Let me just tell you what I think God was asking him. Of course, he didn't know because he was clueless. Can you manage all of the forces and velocities associated with the fact that the earth has to rotate at 1,038 miles per hour as it orbits the sun at a velocity of 67,000 miles per hour? 
and maintain a tilt in its axis of exactly 23.4 degrees? All those things have to happen in order for the bear to be visible always and for Orion to track across the night sky from November through February. I think God was saying, if you can handle that, you might just qualify to question the way I think or the way I do things. It's a pretty good scolding, isn't it? And this is just a sample of the questions. I mean, these questions go on for four chapters. He got a tongue lashing. This one kind of sums up what we've been talking about this morning. Verse 33. Do you know the laws of the universe? Do you get a better feel for what that entails because of what I told you about string theory? We don't have a clue about the laws of the universe. As advanced as we are, we don't have a clue. There's many unanswered questions. We don't know why relativity doesn't jibe with quantum theory. We just know that they don't jibe. But they exist in the same universe, so there must be some way that we can bring those two theories together. Amen? We just don't know what it is. Eighty years they've been struggling with this. So the final question, I would put it like this. What exactly are the laws of the universe? Is it even something we can know in this realm? Or are our natural minds alone too feeble to comprehend what we might discover? Personally, I don't believe that God is holding out on us concerning the great questions and the great mysteries of the universe. But I know in my spirit that the carnal mind of man alone will not be able to ask the right questions, much less answer them, if we are to unravel these great mysteries. Listen to what Einstein said about this. The basic laws of the universe are simple. But because our senses are limited, we can't grasp them. There is a pattern in creation. And I think some born-again, spirit-filled, up-and-coming scientists might just follow that pattern and find out what they call the theory of everything. And it would be awesome if that happened in our lifetime. That's why I'm praying that more spirit-filled Christians will pursue careers in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. They have an acronym. They call that STEM disciplines because I've got a hunch that the answers to some, if not all of these questions, will only come to someone who has knowledge of the spirit realm. Someone who has the knowledge and wisdom that can only come from the Word of God. How's this for a career track? Go to a good Bible school. Learn the Bible. When you graduate, go pursue a Ph.D. in a STEM-related field of study. When you do your research, pray in the Holy Ghost. Pray in tongues for a couple hours a day and see what the Lord might show you. The possibilities are limitless because if you're born again and spirit-filled, you have access to the mind of Christ and the wisdom of God. Amen? And if you're trained in the Bible and trained in the sciences, you have the ability to understand what it is that the Lord might be showing you. I want to conclude by saying, I, I see a lot of smoke in the room, so i got to say this. This message is not just for the scientifically minded. Hopefully, I've shown you through the Word and with a bit of science just how awesome the knowledge and the wisdom and the power of God are compared to that of man. And just how much higher His thoughts are 
than ours. And if I've done that, I've succeeded. Amen? Amen. We will not be taking questions. <laughs> Praise the Lord. You can come up to me afterwards and ask questions. Chris would be telling us the fact that the 10 different vibrating strings, the theory goes, I'll just throw this out there, this probably won't make the tape, but uh, for string theory to be valid, uh, each of those 10 strings give rise to the existence of 10 different dimensions. Okay. And uh, there's only four that we know about in, in this universe. Okay. But the reason it intrigues me is because the Bible is full of proof that there are extra-dimensional realms out there. Okay. So, string theory sounds pretty valid and pretty promising to me. Because, for example, hell is referred to as the bottomless pit. Okay. Yet we know from other scriptures that hell is in the center of the earth. But if you were to drill down to the magma core of the earth, you wouldn't find hell because it's not in this dimensional domain. It's in another dimensional realm. In the same space, so to speak, but in a different dimension. Okay. The word bottomless pit there, I did a word study on that, and it means a pit that expands to take as many people as need to come into hell. Now, that's a pretty frightening thought. Hell might be full, but there's always room for more. You know, That's frightening. That, that makes me want to tell everybody about Jesus. You don't want to go to that place. God made a way for you to go to another place. In heaven, talking about extra-dimensional things, in heaven, it describes the gates made of a single pearl. Now, these gates are 212 feet high, so that's a massive clam that gave birth to that pearl. Either that's the case, there's really big clams in heaven, or there's a way that they can manipulate matter in heaven where they don't have to have a killer clam. The clam that ate Cincinnati. Sounds like a 1950s sci-fi novel. Uh, then um, the streets are made of transparent gold. Okay. Transparent gold is not... Gold exists on the earth, right? It is an element that exists on the earth. But on the earth, you cannot get transparent gold because... There's no process with our atmospheric pressure and all the parameters on earth. There's no process by which you can get gold 100% pure. It's 97, 98% pure, and so it has a yellow tint to it. That's the impurities in gold. Okay? So in heaven, they can do things with gold that we can't do on earth. So the, the rules of physics or the atmosphere must be different up there for them to be able to do things that we can't do on the earth. I could go on and on and on. You know, heaven is described as having uh, four walls and four gates, north, south, east, and west. Most people don't think about this. North, south, east, and west only makes sense in the context of a globe, a sphere. So that tells me right there that heaven is not some city that's floating in space. It is a city that sits on a planet. I call it planet heaven. The Bible refers to heaven as the New Jerusalem which I believe sits on planet heaven. Now, my only question is, is that planet in this dimensional domain or is it in another dimensional domain like hell? I don't know the answer to that yet. 
and I haven't been able to find any scriptures that point either way. So it's kind of up in the air. Either way, if you're born again, you're going there. Amen. Hallelujah. Whether you have to transcend the dimensional domain you're in right now or not, you're going to heaven. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Amen. Hallelujah. All right. Be blessed. You guys are dismissed. Have a great Sunday. Eat some good food. And don't add to the bulge at your equator. We hope you enjoyed today's message, The Laws of the Universe. If you would like to hear more about Faith Life Fellowship and access more of Dr. Forrest's teachings, you can visit our website at gofaithlife.com. Also, visit and like our Facebook page at Faith Life Wilmington.